The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing an eighth Doctor story, a big Finnish audio story called Embrace the Darkness. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father Cory. How's it going? Folks, we would love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and write a review or share the podcast with your friends. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, which you can do now because we are now a YouTube video as well, where you can see our smiling faces. And if you could like, share, uh, comment, and all those things that uh, YouTubers say, uh, that helps us grow this community and reach more listeners. Hey, we've been at this for over eight years now, and we're still growing because of you, our audience. So we really do appreciate that. Uh, I want to tell you about another show on the network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Middle-Earth. They've just finished their uh, first season of Rings of Power discussion, but they're going to keep talking about all kinds of Tolkien stuff. So be sure to check that out at sqpn.com slash Middle-Earth. And finally, be sure to stick around to the end of this episode. We have a lot of great feedback on our recent episode where we were ranking the companions uh we, we got a lot of uh, your uh rankings as well so be sure to stick around for that as well but first we're going to be talking about this 2002 eighth doctor story starring paul mcgann and uh i almost said isla fisher india but fisher india <laughs> fisher isla fisher is a different uh, actress uh in india fisher uh but jimmy could you give us a recap of what happens this week, the Eighth Doctor and Charlie go to a solar system whose star has mysteriously vanished. Using the TARDIS to go back in time, they see it vanish, but then they skip forward a bit and arrive on a spaceship. The spaceship is run by an artificial intelligence called ROSM, which stands for Rescue Operations Security Module. It's on a mission to rescue a team of three workers that were at a base on the planet and then sent a distress call. When they arrive at the planet, which is Sumeria 4, the Doctor and Charlie discover that the three workers are horrifically missing their eyes and can't see. They were in the process of trying to start a ring of artificial suns around the planet to make it habitable, but they were attacked by a previously undetected native life form called Sumerians, who took out their eyes and creepily urged them to embrace the darkness. <laughs> It turns out that a thousand years ago, the Sumerians caused their son to vanish. So they were the cause of that. And they did it because they were being attacked by a race called the Solarians that was drawn to the light like moths. It also turns out that the Sumerians are healers and have a biological compulsion to heal. So they restore the eyes of the three workers, though it costs a Sumerian its life. A thousand years ago, there was a plague, and they were unable to heal all the Solarians, so they put out their son to stop the Solarian attacks on them. They then w underwent rapid, accelerated evolution and lost their eyes like cavefish. So it's the moths versus the cavefish in this episode. And they were only trying to help the workers when they put out their eyes. Unfortunately, before the Doctor learns all this, he activates the artificial suns. This causes the Solarians, who use light-powered ships, to again approach the planet. 
But it turns out that the Salarians are actually a race that split off from the Sumerians, and they still have their eyes since they haven't spent a thousand years in the darkness. They initially act militaristically towards the workers and Razum, but it turns out that they're just militaristic archaeologists. They don't realize that any of their race survived on the planet, and once they realize that the Sumerians are still alive, hostilities cease and the day is saved. The end. Militaristic archaeologists. I was thinking Daniel Jackson from Stargate. <laughs> oh, well, kind of, yeah. I was thinking Only... him or River Song or Indiana Jones. Pick one. Yeah, right. I think I think River Song has more of a shoot first policy than SG One did. That's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> you know, I was thinking of a, the effectiveness of an audio story in about a, about a story having to do with blindness mm-hmm. uh, and how effective that was in having to. Uh, you know, hear what's going on and not see because at, at several points, the characters are all completely in the dark, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, and it was, I thought that was like effective uh, creepiness for the listener because I'm also in the dark figuratively. Mm-hmm. There's another big finished production that's like this that I listened to recently. It's a team up between Colin Baker's sixth doctor and David Tennant's 10th doctor. And it's a weeping angel story, and it's Ooh. called it's called Wink, and mm. it's set on a planet which has the opposite problem to this one. It's surrounded by suns, and so night only falls every you know thousand years or something. And otherwise, they're in blindingly brilliant light all the time, and so the inhabitants of the of the planet are blind and are surrounded by weeping angels and don't even know it until the sixth and the tenth Doctor show up. Mm. Oh man, that is so <laughs> creepy. Because <laughs> then the weeping angels can move at will if there's no one there to see them, except yeah. themselves. The, well, except except there's a complication, um, uh. and there was something holding them in check until nightfall. Uh. But the um, uh, the sixth doctor also points out something that some fans have wondered about if you if if you got to keep your your eyes on a weeping angel but you can't keep your eyes open why don't you just use them one at a time yeah. and wink oh yeah 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 <laughs> yeah did they not do that on screen once i don't know i don't know maybe maybe anyway that's a different story which maybe we'll do sometime cuz that sounds mm-hmm. like a good one uh so yeah they're they're in a, a planet with no star You've got this uh, outpost on it. They lose power. They're in the complete darkness. And something is with them in the darkness and whispers embrace the darkness, like you mentioned, which mm-hmm. is like a setup for you know so many sci-fi, like aliens and like mm-hmm. just the idea of being out in the dark, in the, in the deep dark uh, of space and losing power and something is in the room with you. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it plays on classic science fiction horror tropes. Well, even in space, I mean, you've got the abyss was much of that, too, was, you know, the darkness of the deep sea and right. the unknown, right. things like that. So in terms of tropes, it, I thought it was very effective. I thought it was a creepy, effectively creepy story. When they reveal what's actually going on, though, there are some plot holes to my mind. It's not entirely clear to me what actually happened a thousand years ago. I mean, if these were, if these, if this is really originally just one race, why were the Solarians attacking? You know, that's not that. I mean, they may have explained that, but if so, it went yeah. by so quickly and confusedly that I didn't get it. 
Also, it seems a real coincidence why the Solarians instantly show up as soon as the suns mm-hmm. turn on. It would seem like they had to already be on their way since they're using slower-than-light travel. Right. And and so, uh, it, to my mind, there are a couple plot holes there, but it was still an effectively creepy story. And, you know, I, would, they, I would say with the, the issue of the Solarians attacking, mm-hmm, is they, it, right. was, it was seen as an attacking by the Sumerians because they were trying to heal their plague and was killing them. But it wasn't actually an attack. It just over a thousand right. years had been passed down in, from we've had this terrible plague, which hurt us as much as them, to they were attacking us. And that's why we had to kill the sun. And yeah. and that could that could well be. I figured that a likely explanation would be this is something that is in memory perceived as an attack, but it may have right. been something else, actually. Yeah. But they didn't give us to, a clear they- enough explanation that I caught it. Right. No, that's true. That's true. There's, I, I thought they it, did say something, yeah. but they did. So yeah. they said that, um, the, yeah, the Solarians came to be healed by a plague. And as they established, uh, the Sumerians have to kind of give of themselves, which is an mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're empathic healers. Yeah. And so if they if they give too much, you know, the, this this it's almost like, you know, loving to 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 death you know that sort mm-hmm. of like that healing you know the brotherly love of, of that sort of thing um enough it will kill them and there were so many that were in need so many solarians who were sick that in order to preserve themselves they needed to cut them off and right. that's mm-hmm. why they they darkened the sun uh, and so yeah jesus did that once or maybe that <laughs> was just going up into the mountains to get away from all the people yeah right yeah. Well, and the, the interesting thing about that is the Sumerians then say, you know, we were selfish in cutting them off we, to save ourselves. We let them die. Um, mm-hmm. And so now we, it's a uh, it's payback. It's justice. That's what I think it was to put it before putting our own needs over that of the Solarians. So they were an intensely empathic, self-giving culture, which is an interesting flip for what is originally a monster in the dark mm-hmm. uh, that, that they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also not even, to my mind, not clear why the Sumerians initially put out the workers' eyes because they later profess not to know what eyes even are. Yeah, they say, that was they, confusing. They, they say they can taste the light that the workers brought with their ship, which is what attracted them to the workers. Mm-hmm. And okay, that's fine. They've just got some kind of light sensing ability, maybe on their tongues. Um, and and that's possible. There are organisms here on earth that have light sense that little patches of light sensitive cells even though they're not full eyes mm-hmm. so that that could happen and this could be a an empathic healing culture among the original race so not everybody had this ability but it's still not clear to me why they would put out the eyes of the workers yeah it felt like they were saying that these particles that they emit like this is this is particle field mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, it was like a side effect of that or something like it's a pro, like it's it distinguishes all light like because it shuts down the base and all that other stuff like it this particle is a multi-use <laughs> multi-tool yeah. light extinguisher and so the extinguishing the eyes was just a side effect of, i don't know that's, yeah they didn't do a good ex- a job explaining that and that, and that's kind of how i took it too is that it, yeah. these particles caused it and then the the Sumer- sumerians realized oh wait this is actually a part of their normal function and we need to heal it right eventually so you know one thing i thought was kind of interesting is there really wasn't a true antagonist there really wasn't a true bad guy 
Right. Yes. Because, you know, Sumerian, Sumerians were first presented as bad guys, but then it turns out, no, they weren't bad. They were just misunderstanding what was going on. And then the Salarians were presented as bad guys, but it turns out they were just, they were being misunderstood what was going on. And then Rossum was kind of floating through there as sort of a bad guy, but really it was because he was being corrupted by its, by the, the particles and he's doing his programming and everything. And he's really not a bad guy either. So it was, it was kind of interesting yeah. that mm -hmm. there really wasn't a true, just, one bad guy. And and it's refreshing to have stories like that on an occasional basis as mm -hmm. opposed to every other week like on Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. They're not really bad. They're just misunderstood. We're just drawn that way as they as or, 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 I, I was thinking of Wreckham Ralph, you are a bad guy, but you are not a bad guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, that's another one. Um there's an interesting moment at the beginning where the, when the doctor's on his way to Samaria where he's passing through the time vortex and encounters a fleet of type 70 TARDISes. That's what his is, is a type 70. His and is kinda, a type 40. 40. Is it a type? Oh, the type yeah. 70s are the, are the new ones. Okay. Yep. Um, and it kind of passes on. And I gathered from the TARDIS wiki that that's actually a ref, a, a kind of a planting a seed from a, for a future story. We'll come back mm -hmm. to that. So I uh, just thought that was interesting. They mentioned what the word Samaria means how it translates it's been given to the planet that's not their own name for themselves i just know it from conan the barbarian yeah this <laughs> is sumerian and it's not sumeria like the uh, middle eastern um ancient culture but simeria c-i-m-m-e-r-i-a what was it again what did it mean again i don't forget i don't remember i don't uh, recall them explaining the meaning of the word um oh, okay the i remember them spelling the word because yeah, it was, Charlie it was looks named, it up in the in the TARDIS databank. Yeah, it was. It was. All that the TARDIS wikia says it was named by a, a group of explorers, Throxillian explorers. Yeah, which oh, okay. is the mining company that, okay. or the artificial sun company. I thought it would, like they said. Oh, the root of it is like dark. Something having to do with darkness, which is you know. I like the fact that the Doctor kind of drifts through time mm -hmm. to 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 pinpoint when the sun disappears because he wants to find out what happened. So. Yeah, if you're a Time Lord, you just go hang out to before the sun has disappeared and then just speed things up, fast forward until it disappears and then find out who did it, uh, which yeah. is, uh, would be an interesting way to solve a lot of mysteries, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that was a good one. By the way, speaking of things being named after other things, Rossum is a mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. another one. Um, he His name, R-O-S-M, is a um, variant. It's. It's a homophone for Rossum, R-O-S-S-U-M, which is the company in uh, Carol Chapek's play R-U-R, -R, which stands for Rossum's Universal Robots, which is the play that introduced the word robot um, mm -hmm. into world culture. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so he, Rossum, the artificial intelligence, is a callback literarily to Rossum's Universal Robots. That was nice. Yeah, and this Rossum stands for Rescue Operational Security Module. Mm -hmm. um, and he's he's not just a, a an AI in a box in a ship. Yeah. He's also in control of a bunch of effectively battle drones mm -hmm. yes. that he can use to do his will. And early on, there is a nice scene where the Doctor and Charlie are about to meet one of these battle drones, and it's a big, hulking, intimidating metal robot. 
And Charlie is a little bit freaked out by it. And the doctor says, appearances can be deceptive. And then Charlie whispers, please be deceptive. Please be deceptive. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes. yeah, and th- what happened was is the the crew of the base when everything went dark and then they were blinded um sent out a distress signal and that's uh the the head of the crew is uh, her name's Orliensa and then the two guys are Ferris and Halliard. Um, Orliensa, Halliard and Ferris, yeah. Yeah. And and Halliard and Ferris are amuse themselves by playing drafts, which if you're an American that means they amuse themselves by playing checkers. Huh. Oh, checkers. Right. I didn't look it up. But, whereas yeah. if you're British, checkers is the prime minister's residence. <laughs> right, right. In the country, not yep. the, not number 10. Yes. Um, so the so this ro- it's a rescue robot that responds to, you know, automatically to the distress signal to come in and rescue them. They don't send people, apparently. They send a, an AI. Um, As you do. Which actually mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. If it's a dangerous situation, you don't send more people to get into trouble, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um so, but he, Rossum takes the doctor into custody and interrogates them because, you know, why are you here? You're not, you know, you're an unknown element. In this. Why are you like, on my ship? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that well, uh, Rossum actually grabbed the TARDIS. So the TARDIS was flying around near the ship and it's like, mm-hmm. you're unidentified. I'm going to grab you and capture you. Right. Okay. So be part of the problem. Basically tracked yeah. him in or uh, teleported the TARDIS into the ship. And although he kind of gives the doctor a pass, at least up to a point, he's willing to study him and the doctor seems to have useful knowledge. He wants to kill Lifeform Charlie. Yeah. Because Lifeform Charlie has cells that are, in its words, inimicable to human life um, because she's from a pre-genetic engineering culture. Charlie is from 1930s Earth. And so they weren't doing genetic engineering on humans Mm -hmm. then to eliminate things like carcinogenic cells and so he detects that she's got carcinogenic cells in her body as everybody does cells that one day potentially could develop into cancer right and wants to protect uh the people he's going to rescue from exposure to charlie or i should say life form charlie because everybody but rossum is a life form you've got life form doctor life form charlie life form orlinsa life form halliard and life form ferris but uh, this is this is an interesting concept, and I like the concept. Although, if if the cells are native to Charlie's body, the way the doctor is saying, then they're no threat to anybody else. What could be a threat to other people are are viruses, or it turns out fungi mm. that can mm-hmm. cause cancer in people, and she could be radiating viruses or fungi that that cause or feed cancer. Which actually happens, although it's not people have not been very aware of it until recently. Hmm. Right. So once it once the doctor convinces it that the potentially dangerous cellular clusters, as he calls it, are no danger to anyone else, the, Rossum still finds some other. He says there's other unusual data about her, which has come up before. Yeah, because um, she's a she's a time paradox, and and she doesn't realize that, and only the doctor knows that at this point. Okay. Yep. Okay. So in order to escape from Rossum, she ends up doing an R2-D2-C3PO and gets in an escape pod to the planet. <laughs> I, I like how as a woman from the 1930s, the escape, she interprets, she gets what the escape pod is, but no one's there to tell her the name of it. And uh-huh. so she interprets it as a kind of lifeboat, yes. which makes sense because it's like a little boat that comes off a bigger boat. It's like a lifeboat. 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a that was a nice. I like the way that they write this character. They're keeping in mind always that she is a product of a particular time, and thus it's kind of like Jamie and mm-hmm. other you know in Victoria and other uh, classic Who companions, which would be nice to see again. Yeah. BBC. And, <laughs> and and like Jamie, she just rolls with it. You know, yes. she interprets what's going on in her environment in her own terms and doesn't worry about it. Exactly. Uh, meanwhile, back in the darkness, uh, Orlenza, the the chief there, the, the Orlenza, Ferris, and Halliard are in the dark, and Orlenza's kind of weirdly passive about mm-hmm. what's happened to them. But the uh, the men, meanwhile, are weeping uh, and discussing the pain of what's happened to them, especially and, Ferris. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, although Halliard is starting to lose his mind, he's starting to, to to go crazy. They don't realize at first that their eyes have been removed because mm-hmm. um, it's but, dark, right? Exactly. So Charlie, as she shows up there, uh, the, the the lifeboat, the uh, escape pod docks with the with the station, and she's starting to be affected by the same thing that's affected them. She's starting to go blind too, but she's not immediately blinded like they were. Um, so it doesn't uh, quite affect her as as heavily as it does them. It it doesn't damage her eyesight, but it doesn't kill it off completely. It doesn't take right. her eyes out completely. And it's an effectively creepy moment where she lands in the life pod, and there's light in the life pod, of course, mm-hmm. and so she can see them in at the distance. But they're going like, "What are you talking about? It's completely dark in here." Yeah, and she she urges them to to walk towards her, and when they do, she sees that they have no eyes. Man, now I, I mentioned before how this works especially well as an audio story, but in a, if this was a a TV story, that would be really creepy to see them come out of the darkness mm-hmm. with no eyes. That would be really creepy. Well, of course, um, you get the creepiness of just you having to use your imagination to picture that as you're listening. You know, if you're if you're a yeah. person who has that, who when you're listening to audio dramas or whatever, you're, you're picturing it. You know, you, you can imagine how creepy that could be in your own mind. Right. I wonder what aphantasiacs experience when they listen to audio dramas. Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, hmm. because aphantasiacs don't have the ability to spontaneously visualize situations and hmm. usually don't realize that other people do and think that we're using some kind of metaphor when we say, picture this or imagine this. Hmm. Huh. I wonder if they just don't listen to it because it doesn't work for them. You know, it, or they, I don't know. Um, yeah. I would suspect they do listen to them uh, because otherwise, I mean, they listen to the radio and they hear yeah. stories on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear from anyone who's an aphantasiac if you are, you know, mm-hmm. to let us know. Yeah. So the uh, Sumerians, meanwhile, keep whispering in the darkness, which is, you know, stop whispering. That's really creepy. <laughs> they, <laughs> they uh, which it's also hard to understand at points, but. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a common problem with people doing sound effects uh, for right. mysterious voices. They often overdo it. And Big Finish, this is one of the technical flaws with Big Finish. They will often overdo um, alien speech and make it right. too mm-hmm. hard to understand. Right. Yeah, uh, but keep- this is this is fairly early on um, in yeah. their their work too. So and, yeah. and Nicholas Briggs is one of the voices, you know, the, who of course does the Daleks and many more mm-hmm. voices in New Who. But uh, in fact, so he's one of still the learning Sumerian. craft, you could say. Yeah. And Nicholas Briggs is one of the Sumerian voices in this. Yes, right. Um, so they but they keep whispering, "Embrace the darkness or die," which. Sounds like an imperative, but in fact, is more of a descriptive. Like if mm-hmm. we don't embrace the darkness, we will die. 
but it sounds like you will embrace the darkness or you will die. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, ambiguous statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rossum ends up shooting one of the Sumerians uh, because it perceives it as a threat because of its particle field. Um, they release because of their particle field that interferes with both sight as well as the computer systems and, and such. Um, and so they they take it. It's injured, and they take it back to the ship where they notice that it's kind of childlike. It has mm-hmm. a simple physiology, flat features, and black mm-hmm. eyes. Like it has these. Like I, I kind of pictured the Roswell Grays. That's yes. kind of what I was picturing. They're described uh, very much like the Roswell Grays. The only thing the description doesn't say is that they have big heads, but yeah. they are described mm-hmm. as being the size of children, and they look like human children. Except they've got black eyes and extremely pale, like grayish skin. Yep. Uh, Orlenza, 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 Orlen- I guess. Orlenza, Orlenza. Um, she's very bitter and snarky. She also mm-hmm. has I, the accent to me sounded like Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely an Eastern European style accent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sweet Possibly as a baby in arms, as she calls it. Oh, coochie, coochie, coo. She says, you know, in a snarky voice. Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, yeah. And then, um, the meanwhile, Halliard, still wandering around in the dark on the base, he kind of wandered off uh, and encounters the Sumerians. And they all, they, then they say that other thing, like we talked about, like the tasting. We want to taste his eyes because we don't know what eyes are. And like, mm-hmm. again, that sounds really creepy. Like you think they're mm-hmm. going to take his eyes out and eat them. But no, like, like we said, their, their primary sense is taste. taste. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not hearing, which would be the case, for, you know, very often on, you know, for blind people among humans is the, their hearing gets really, Mm-hmm. They depend more dependent. That's it's, I know it's a myth that your hearing gets better if you're blind. It's just that because you're more dependent on it, you use it more. Right. Yeah. There, it's mostly a myth. Um, also, I'm not. I'm not sold that their taste is really the same as our taste. I suspect mm-hmm. it's actually smell. Right. Right. Because because our our taste in, in is a chemical sense that involves getting your tongue into contact with something, mm-hmm. whereas our smell is a chemical sense that does not involve getting your tongue in in contact with something, but picking up on uh, chemicals in the air, and that seems to be more like what they're doing. And although it's not exactly it doesn't have to be chemicals because it can be electromagnetic waves because they can taste the light. Yeah. Mm. But they and don't seem course, to be using their tongues for this. And, of course, you know, as, as many people found out with, with the uh, pandemic, <laughs> yeah. our taste, our sense of sense, smell and sense of taste are united. What, and we call that taste, you know, the, yeah. the combination of the two of them. You lose one of them and it, the food tastes so different than it does when right. you have both. So. Right, right. That's a good point. Uh, so what the thing that they were doing on the outpost uh, the the job they're doing, they were going to launch artificial suns around Samaria. The I, I guess they well, were going to. They had to launched use it? them. Yeah, they had yeah. launched them already. They'd put the ring of suns in place. They just hadn't turned them on yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I these guess would these would presumably mining? be fusion reactors. Yeah, and they said mm-hmm. to make the planet habitable so they could exploit its mineral resources since nobody detected any life forms on it. Right. 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 Um. 
So uh, then we find out that there's multiple kinds of particle fields. The first wave knocks out your eyes. The second waves will kill you, apparently. I mean, they're, they're talking about that uh, as we go along. Um, uh, Ferris, throughout this, is hopeful that he can get his eyes back because uh, uh, Charlie gets healed by this Sumerian that gets, got injured. And so he's thinking, well, if she can get healed, even though she had partial loss of sight, uh, maybe I can get my eyes back all together. And Orleanza is uh, very dismissive of that. You know, uh, why are you hoping so much? She's a very negative sort of person. She's mm-hmm. not an optimist at all. Uh, given well, given that she talks about how she's been through some very bad, she's had some bad luck in her job. Uh, I can understand that, I guess. Yeah, well, this she, is not her first rescue situation. No. She's been rescued multiple times, but she actually appreciates Halliard and Ferris. She likes them. They have a functional relationship, even if it's, you know, kind of a little rough, but they they have a functional positive relationship. And so she's not just a stereotypical cruel boss or anything. She actually appreciates the men she works with. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's she's definitely got a she she doesn't keep on the sunny side, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah she's she's not handling the, the the situation very well, at least as a personal on a personal level. You know, not not so much taking command or whatever, but she's not handling it. You know, personally about oh we're we'll never get our eyes back, and we're always going to be blind from now on. And oh wait. And, and and her attitude does change once the healing starts. When she and, gets healed, yeah. Especially yeah. when she gets healed, but if, even with Ferris, once he gets healed first, she's like, oh, wait, you know, this is... This yeah. Can- she, yeah, she, she, at first she's, like, dismissive. She wants to kill the, the wounded Sumerian, you know. She wants it to die. She's so angry. But once it heals her... She's got to change her heart about the that particular Sumerian, but all but the Sumerians in general, I guess. Um, especially since it gives its life in healing them. Um, the, now there's a there's a 2001 a Space Odyssey moment in this where mm-hmm. um, uh, Halliard is is trying is, is trying to get into the ship. Uh, I guess the ship at this point has docked with this, has yes. landed in docked yeah. with the station. Um, and so he's like banging on the door on the in, on the intercom. Let me in, let me in, or we're all gonna die. Let me in, let me in. Um, and Rossum won't open the door. So it's kind of this like Hal versus. I'm you know, sorry, Dave. I'm sorry, I can't Dave. do that. <laughs> but uh, but although, Rossum, although Rossum is a lot more macho than Hal is, yes, that yep. is true. Uh, and admits it may not be thinking straight because its systems are failing. And so there's this whole thing where the particle field is affecting Rossum. The doctor is trying to convince it to listen to him and to do certain things and and he's also trying to you know work around it and then rossum keeps interpreting that as a hostile act and so you have this drama that kind of goes back and forth this is a a two-hour four-part story so it's in Mm -hmm. the classic who style Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of time is spent doing that uh you know that the doctor trying to work around rossum you got Rossum constantly talking about percentage of un, you know unreality or reality is percent you know uncertain and eventually says reality is uncertain reality is uncertain you know <laughs> yes yes um, th- there is a, a point in the, in all this where Charlie is confronted I think by Orleans uh, uh, Orlensa three syllables I know, that I really gets me every time <laughs> Orlensa um, who. Charlie talks talks about being with a doctor. It feels like home. That's her mm-hmm. home now. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure how much of that is just normal companion. I'm 
you know, I feel connected to the doctor and how much is she's a time paradox and has no home in time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting because it was presented as unusual. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Um, so we mentioned that the Sumerians are afraid of the Solarians, which is why they darkened the sun to hide from them. Um, and as we're finding this out, the doctor is activating what they call the EPUs, the artificial suns, um, at, when he shouldn't be because that now the Solarians will find them. And so you have this classic, you know, uh, oh, the doctor shouldn't turn that on now that he, now that he plans to. We should go stop him. And it, he flicks the switch and like just at the last minute before they can t- stop him. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what's going to happen? And I think that's where we ended episode three. Um, yeah, they also, there's, there's also a delay of a couple of minutes before they know whether the suns will actually come on. Right. And then they do. And the doctor announces it's the first dawn in the Sumerian system in a thousand years, which is yes. kind of a dramatic moment. Yes. Incidentally, the name, so we've got a, a fairly standard, you know, trait name for the Sumerians. The humans name them after the planet they're on. The Solarians, uh, or Solarans, are also obviously have a trait name since they're drawn to light. A Solarium is a sunroom. It's mm-hmm. a room in a house that's deliberately designed to let in sunlight and oftentimes it was used for light therapy. The idea would be that sitting in sunlight would help heal your some of your medical problems, which it actually would if, like, you're vitamin D deficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got another trait name for the Solarians. One thing that is, I think, um, a writing flaw, although they're trying to be clever with it, is, um, but it, it's it's just a slight flaw. Um, they describe the um, the Sumerian ships as using uh, light sails, and mm-hmm. light sa- Well, okay, so light sails or solar sails are a real thing. Uh, mm-hmm. NASA has even, or your uh, human space agencies, including I believe NASA, have even tested them in space. Um, but basically the idea is you put up a big sail of reflective material and the sunlight bounces off of it and pushes the ship. So it's like a wind sail that uses solar wind or light, which are not the same thing, uh, Mm -hmm. as a means of propulsion. And they, they talk about it as a kind of primitive space technology that like early spaceships used that. And I think they want the audience to understand these to be like, the light sails that humans use but they're clearly not mm. because mm-hmm. the because they they don't turn on the central sun they they note that the ships get faster as they're coming closer to the light and okay that could make sense if these are solar sails and you're tacking around the sun in a certain way but mm-hmm. but this is a ring of suns around the planet and right. you wouldn't approach the planet faster if you are if you're using solar sails because the light is pushing away from the planet. Mm-hmm. And so these are not solar sails, they're some kind of sail that absorbs the light that is then used to drive an engine. Right. Um that's the only way you could make sense yeah. of them coming towards the planet and getting faster. So I think that this I think that the author of the script didn't really understand how solar sails work <laughs> and but created yeah. an, an an effective equivalent if you just listen to the clues. Yeah, yeah it, it sounds more like solar panels than it does yeah. solar sails. Yeah. 
you know, right. like the, that they're, char- they're they're charging up their dilithium drive or whatever, you know. Science fiction does not know how solar shells works. See Deep Space Nine. You mean, you mean they can't go? They can't go warp one due to some space eddies somewhere in the Bajoran system. <laughs> Please, no. if, if 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 they have a hundred percent, a hundred percent or more efficient solar sails, maybe. But yeah. good luck finding a hundred percent efficient technology. Right, right. Ugh. So at, at around this point in the story, we get this idea that the Doctor is. Planning to sacrifice himself, uh, he wants to be punished by the Solarians for the Sumerian genocide. Something, maybe. Um, I mean, Charlie thinks that's what the Doctor's motive is. I'm not because he he takes he takes the dead uh, Sumerian that sacrificed itself to regenerate everybody's eyes mm-hmm. and goes to meet with the Solarian with the Sumerians, and he's just turned on the suns and right. And he, they, they're about to, and they've detected. They haven't yet seen, but they've detected the Solarian ships coming, and so he takes the um, the dead Sumerian to, to go to the other Sumerians and apologize for what he's brought on them. And he is really laying a guilt trip on himself. And Charlie interpret, and he also makes arrangements. He turns to one of the workers and says, "If I don't come back, take care of Charlie." Mm-hmm. Right. And she, when she learns that, that he, he, he said he might not come back and take care of her. She's having none of that. She's going to go be with the doctor. (laughs) And when she confronts him, she accuses him of having a kind of guilt complex where he wants to be punished for, for, for his perceived misdeeds, even though he didn't really do anything wrong. But I'm not, I, I think the doctor was not necessarily actively seeking punishment but was acknowledging risks that the Sumerians may not forgive me for what I've done. Right. Okay. And, and I may end up dead as a result, but I don't think he was actively trying to get killed. At least I don't think that was a big part of his motive, the way Charlie seems to think. Okay. Uh, There's a nice scene where, so Charlie does go with the doctor to, to, see the Sumerians and there's a nice scene where the Sumerians want to tell them their story. So they give them, they feed them history stew. (laughs) Yeah. Charlie says it looks like mud pies and smells like cooking potatoes. And (laughs) when, so it smells good. Yeah. Yeah. But they have them taste history. And for some reason, even though their biology is completely different than the Sumerians, both the doctor and Charlie can taste the history when they when they consume it. <laughs> yeah, um, the the Sumerians also do other things that are are marvelous. They're able to walk through solid matter, and that's how they get in and out of places. Um, so, like the doctor and Charlie, when they first make contact with the Sumerians, one of them just climbs up through the floor of the cave, mm-hmm. and. Or wherever they're standing, it climbs up through the floor, and then they're a, they're also able to turn other objects insubstantial. So the Doctor and Charlie fall through the floor to a chamber where the Sumerians are, and later when one of the workers comes to fetch them, without even going to get him, the Sumerian just causes him to fall through the floor into the chamber too, so they can apparently mm-hmm. do this at a distance, which is wicked cool. <laughs> yes it's as long as they remember to like make you solid again so you don't keep falling to the next yeah. floor the next floor <laughs> also their funeral services are really simple just push molecular yep. dispersal 
very efficient. Uh, yes, it doesn't take any time at all. And no, no cemeteries have to take up space. So, uh, and then, as you mentioned, in the end, the Salarians, turns out they're not enemies. They're, they are, uh, they're basically the Romulans to the Sumerians' Vulcans, say, mm-hmm. um, but with eyes. Uh, and the ones who have come to see them are not soldiers or warriors. They're, as we said, archaeologists coming to, you know, examine this ancient civilization and finding people there. Uh, which would be an interesting uh, thing to experience as an archaeologist, wouldn't it? Like, you know, show up in the, uh, you, like, say you show up in the middle of the, you know, uh, South, uh, Central American forest and find a bunch of Aztecs <laughs> yeah. living there. That would be kind of unusual. So, Or uh, like yeah. when you go to Egypt and suddenly, wait, where did all these Egyptians come from? <laughs> right, Ooh. exactly. Uh, that would be interesting. So, and then, of course, that's where the story ends. So, uh, Father Corey, any other notes on this story? I- I have to admit, every time I heard Ring of Sons, I kept thinking of Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire. But mm. <laughs> no, I, I really enjoyed this. It was actually a very enjoyable mm-hmm. story, well, well told story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was great. It was two hours, but it was it felt like it, you know, compelling the whole way through. So yeah, immediately <laughs> it went a little bit faster for me because I did kick up to one point five percent as I was listening. Mm. But still, I always do, I always do, yeah, <laughs> or one point five times. I mean, yeah. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? Yeah, no, I thought it was enjoyable. It had some plot holes, but I thought it was enjoyable overall. And it had it had some not laugh out loud comedy necessarily, but it had some nice comedic elements. I mm-hmm. I liked uh I, I really liked, you know, please be deceptive, please be deceptive. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was laugh out loud funny. Yeah. But there were other elements. I mean, Charlie is, has a quick wit, and so mm-hmm. she and the doctor both get off little forms of wordplay throughout. Also, I liked how Rossum referred to everybody as life form so and so. So talking about life form Charlie and life form Doctor and life form yep. Orlenza. You know, I really like the Paul McGann's Doctor. I really like the mm-hmm. Eighth Doctor. He really mm-hmm. feels a little bit like a combination of um, Tom Baker and, um, uh, but without all the weirdness, right? Yeah, so, and more and a little bit of the uh, Fifth Doctor, um, Peter uh, Davison. Davison. Peter Davison, yes, but without uh, the grumpiness. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, there's that really, in, um, I don't know. There's a, 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 a nice mm-hmm. blend of some of some types there, and it's just I, I really like it. I wish I wish we could get more of him in live action. That would have been nice. And maybe we will. Although yeah. for the 60th anniversary, although Ooh, yeah. he, um, ha- I mean, he's dodged that question before. Mm-hmm. Um, th- at this point, multiple doctors have been at conventions and been asked, "Are you in the 60th?" And they all dodge. Yes. <laughs> and 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 so like when somebody I saw a video of someone asking Paul McGann that and he he was like, well, I mean, they only call you like two weeks ahead of time. So why would I know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> they only tell us when the shows are two weeks ahead of time. Yes, that's my, uh, a familiar complaint. But he, awesome. his doctor is very charming and dashing and, and literary. I mean, he's yeah. he's modeled after like figures from 19th century British literary history. And so he's yeah. very intelligent and, and winsome. Yeah. yeah. Little Dr. Doodle-ish, Doolittle-ish, uh, you know, that, yep. that sort of thing. Excellent. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's it for Embrace the Darkness. Uh, we have some of your listener feedback. This is going to be from our recent episode, 300, where we ranked the companions. And so we got a lot of great feedback. Uh, the first one comes from James Fitzpatrick, who commented on YouTube, who basically said, I'm mostly with Jimmy on this one, which, mm. you know, aren't we all? Cool. So. Where was I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, he liked your rankings. Uh, also on YouTube, Jason Thayer wrote, uh, really like this episode. I hope you will do more of these. I'd love to see more diversity in Doctor Who, not just in place of origin, but also in nationality or type. I mean, mm-hmm. here in America, we always strive for that in our TV, even if it's for representation purposes. Um, oh, come on. So, they, had, they had Perry. I mean, she, she represents <laughs> Americans, right? <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I agree. I think we mentioned uh-huh. that. Like, how about someone from an African country or an Asian country or, you know, Germany? Like, or, you know, or the future or the past or another planet. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Not just 22nd century people from 21st uh, century people from London. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, or uh, at least in the most recent one, it was uh, Sheffield, but yeah, right, mm-hmm. mostly from yeah. London. Uh, Adrian Visconti sent an email, and uh, it, this is a long one, so I'm going to read out some of it, but uh, uh, we can maybe stop at bits. Uh, congre- congratulations on another milestone. It doesn't seem like that long ago that the 200 special on the essential Doctor Who episodes was done, but here we are. If the companion doesn't come to mind almost immediately when thinking of that particular doctor, then they don't count in my book. With that said, here are my rankings. Uh, at Superior, Donna. Uh, A-level, Rose, Amy, Rory, and Clara. B-level, Ace, Graham, and River. C-level, Mickey and Martha. D, Bill and Ryan. F, Yaz. Uh, and <laughs> so he didn't do, apart from Ace, I don't think there are any other um, uh, classic. Classic. Uh, yep. So, and then he explains, uh, Yaz is my only F. Admittedly, I haven't watched the last two seasons, uh, but because I think she just fails to meet the expectations that are set for her. Jimmy mentioned how we're always told how great she is, but she never fulfills that, and I couldn't agree more there. Martha could have moved up or down had she stuck around another season. She had potential, but things just seemed off in her season. Thank you to Big Finish for introducing me to Ace. Uh, Dom hits the nail on the head when it comes to new companions. A variety of companions from different backgrounds and perspectives make things interesting. There should be more companions who are in it for the thrill, the action-adventure, to satisfy their curiosity, and exploring the vastness of the universe, and not just for the guy providing you with the thrill. Like Uh, Charlie. Exactly. Lastly, and this isn't limited to just Doctor Who, but shows in general should do away with all the politically motivated characters, stories, and underlying messages. When my entertainment outlets keep pushing their ideologies on me, I end up walking away. On to 400. Yeah, so. we agree with that last part. Not going to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess I, I will say that it does seem like there's starting to be a pushback on it. In mm-hmm. You know, you look at some of the shows that are coming out through streaming are starting to push back on it a little bit. So maybe that's a positive sign. Yeah. Um, so Ted, uh, Coville via email writes, I was really looking forward to listening to this episode when it was announced. And after listening to the episode, I have some thoughts right from the start. I never considered the members of unit captain Jack or any metal objects as a companion and didn't, (laughs) and didn't think that river was a companion, but she certainly was a companion. I'll start to introduce my, I think at least canine is is a companion, and and chameleon was meant to be a companion. Right. That just didn't work. Yeah. Uh, He says, I'll start to introduce my wife as my companion, and I'll let you know how that works out. (laughs) 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 Let me just guess, not well, unless she has a really good sense of humor. (laughs) At least introducing his wife as his companion rather than his assistant would would have a better chance of success. Or or fam. Friends. (laughs) Right. Uh, I also used a different approach and appeal and applied the dad appeal coefficient DAC, which is why I rated Perry much higher than you all did. (laughs) Mm. Although (laughs) 
Mel did well with the DAC. She lost a lot of points on the uh, annoying, screaming, and fat shaming index. I've Mm. watched the classic series, but I don't think I ever saw Katarina or Sarah Kingdom since there were many missing episodes during their serials. Yeah, there's, there's, it's harder to see them. Um, Katarina is, is barely in the, I mean, she dies in the Daleks master plan and there is a clip of that. I forget if the story she's introduced in survives. It's the one immediately before the Daleks master plan and Sarah kingdom is only in the Daleks master plan. Although there is a complete episode with her. It's the feast of Steven. Yeah. Um, which is the Christmas episode and, and okay. She's hot. Um, (laughs) I think, I think in the, um, for my money, though, uh, in terms of hotness, combining facial attractiveness and how much you see of their body on a regular basis, Leela wins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, and he says, I tried to make it easier on myself by just assigning A, B, and C to each of the companions. So here we go. So he does it by, by the doctors. First doctor, Susan and Barbara, a C. I did like Barbara, but she was too dependent on Ian. Ian is an A. He was a solid companion. Vicky, I gave her a B. I liked your character a lot. Steven Taylor, C. Dodo, Ben, and Polly are Cs. Didn't see enough of them to really have an opinion on them. And if Polly, I had seen Polly more, she would have had uh, a high DAC. <laughs> so that's first doctor. Second doctor, Jamie, triple A, one of my top three. One interesting thing that came to mind, came to me, is that Jamie's played by Fraser Hines. My wife is a fan of the Outlander series, and I've watched the series with her. The main character is Jamie Fraser, who also fought in the Battle of Culloden. And when they run the credits at the end, one of the Who episodes, uh, when they run the credits at the end of one of the Who episodes, it it says Jamie Fraser Hines. I thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, Victoria's a B, mainly because the chemistry between Jamie and herself. It seems like there's genuine affection between the characters. Zoe is a B. She'd be a C, but she does well in the DAC. And what put her from C to B is the fact that there's with, a Facebook with yeah. with the sparkly purple leot cat suit yeah. cat cat suit leotard. I would think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yes. no kidding. And he mentions there's a Facebook page dedicated to just like her behind. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's not my cup of tea. But uh, third Doctor Liz and Joe are a B. Both are good contrasts to the third Doctor. Sarah Jane's a B. I really liked her, and she was a top companion, but I didn't think she was an A. Uh, fourth doctor. I know that I said I was grading A, B, and C, but Adric is an F plus. Mm-hmm. He's responsible for the death of the dinosaurs. Uh, oh, he gave oh, him a plus. It should be an uh, F minus, but no. I think I think there should be a comma there. It says Adric is an F plus. He's responsible for the oh, death okay. of the dinosaurs. So, so <laughs> <laughs> grammar matters. Uh, punctuation matters. Nissa and Tegan are B and C. I think they both started off as C's but finished as B's. I also have Turlo as a B, mainly because he was an alien and was working against the Doctor. So mm-hmm. I, I suppose it made him more interesting. Mm-hmm. Fifth Doctor, Piri, I gave a B because she did well with the DAC, racking up a lot of points early, and that helped offset when they changed her wardrobe in the last season. Mm. The, the I didn't neg- bother him much. Was okay, I, well, I, I acknowledge it touches on the same point. I acknowledge uh, Nicola Bryant's physical attractiveness, but... The depressive whining just is <laughs> yes. yeah. a real turnoff to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I did have someone recently tell me that the uh, uh, Perry stories in Big Finish kind of re- helps redeem the character a bit. They do, just like okay. the Sixth Doctor is better in Big Finish than he than he is on screen. So it was the writing, clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Sixth Doctor, Mel is a C for the reasons listed above. Seventh Doctor, Ace is an A. She's a lot of fun to watch. 
Eighth Doctor, Grace is a C. She didn't make much impression on me. Ninth, Tenth Doctor, Rose I have as a B. She was a good companion for the reboot, but the romance thing did not help my opinion of her. Martha I have as a B. She wasn't written well. She got a good score on the DAC, plus she finished up well. Dawn is an A. She's one of my favorites, played a good counterpart to the part to the Doctor. Didn't like how she finished up, but I look forward to her upcoming appearances. Uh, 11th Doctor. Oh, did you want to comment on that? Okay. 11th Doctor, I have Amy as an A. I just loved her as a companion, and she's one of my favorites. She has a high DAC, and she was awarded additional Scottish ginger points. (laughs) (laughs) Those those are real. Rory is also an A, and his character arc developed so much during his time on the show. I also give Clara an A. Her character was so complex, I didn't really get why she kept showing up throughout the Doctor's timeline. I didn't really get it until my third watch. I don't understand why so many people don't like her. I agree with both Dom and Jimmy. She's cute and hot. Mm-hmm. Um, 12th Doctor, Bill's a C. Nothing really notable about her. 13th Doctor, all Cs. Maybe Dan and Graham could be Bs. Harry Sullivan I have as a C. Didn't make a good impression on me. Uh, he's kind of uh, following up with something yeah. I forgot earlier. Leela, a solid A. Besides achieving mm-hmm. a high DAC, she was fun to watch. Not your run-of-the-mill companion. Romana 1, C, if she was around for more seasons, she might have ranked higher. Mm. Romana 2 is a B. I like the back and forth between her and the Doctor, mm. and she was an equal with the Doctor. That's what I have. I really enjoy listening to the podcast, and I feel like I'm hanging out with old friends. Keep up mm. the good work. Well, and, and by the way, spoilers, we're going to meet Romana 1 here very shortly on the yeah. podcast. That's right. That's right. Next week, uh, unless it's the special. Well, the next week we're recording anyway. Yes, that's right. Uh, that uh, there's a the, that the 60th anniversary special is of the B- or the 100th anniversary BBC special is coming up, and we're not sure when because the BBC is very secret. So we'll <laughs> we'll slot it in when it comes. All right, uh, Jason Thayer uh, followed up with another email. He says, "Hi, I loved your 300th episode. I hope you record more live episodes in the future." Uh, Jason, just so you know, we're going to be doing this video thing as as far as uh, for the foreseeable future indefinitely that's that's right so uh you you can uh, enjoy seeing us uh anyway instead of ranking all the companions like you did i'm just going to narrow it down to 10 uh and so here's his order in uh from 10 to 1 10 the brigadier 9 rose tyler 8 romana 1 7 romana 2 6 jamie mccrinnan uh 5 sarah jane smith 4 leela 3 k9 2 joe grant 1 donna noble honorable mention to captain jack zoe and barbara wright and then uh, our last feedback comes from Trey Kester via email, who writes, I started going through the archive of Secrets of Doctor Who back in February and just caught, caught up in time for episode 300. Wow. <laughs> you, That's Trey. powering through. That's awesome. Well, you'll like this, even, this next bit even better. Yeah. As someone who has never seen an episode of Doctor Who, but has now listened to your podcast, I would say the best Doctor is Sylvester McCoy, closely followed by Matt Smith and Peter Davison. <laughs> And that the best companions are Ace, Jamie, and Rory. Uh, I just need to stop there and say, Trey, you've never seen an episode of Dark Two, but you've listened to every episode of our podcast. That's, like, that's <laughs> impressive. I'm that impressed, impressed by that. Yeah. That is, <laughs> but go watch Doctor Who. <laughs> it's it's yeah. really good. <laughs> Some of it's fun. That was yeah. a lot of fun. Uh, so, and then he finishes up. As a side note, as I was looking at your tier list for episode 300, I realized I didn't recognize any of the classic Who companion pictures since they show up on the podcast episode art way less frequently than the new Who mm-hmm. ones. Little behind the scenes. So the BBC for all of new Who has produced um, cover art for all of their shows. And they're usually illustrations that put 
all the main characters from them from that episode in among with the villains and that sort of thing. Uh, there that doesn't exist mostly for classic who. Mm-hmm. And so I end up having to rely on screenshots for a lot of that, like screen captures for most classic who episodes. So, and mm-hmm. those often don't have the companion and the doctor and like, and it has and something recognizable. Yeah. And the villain so that it's a recognizable part of that episode. It's just a, you know, it's just the luck of the draw in that case. But uh, uh, yeah, thank you. And Thank you, everyone, for your feedback. It is fantastic. We yeah, love getting your feedback. Great. And it was good to hear from you all um, on that. Great. All right, let's wrap things up. We want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Joe B., Sean M., Mark C., Catherine B., and Dave T. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give Make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This StarQuest show is also brought to you in part by Jacqueline Brown, the best-selling author of The Light Series. Check out her new release, Altered, on Amazon or any fine bookstore. Learn more about her and her work at sqpn.com slash brown. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of Embrace the Darkness, this Eighth Doctor Big Finish story? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Fourth Doctor story, The Ribos Operation. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, embrace the darkness. Embrace the darkness.